0: You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Today's guest started his real estate journey in 2003 when his boss asked him to build a custom office campus. He was terrified at the time because he didn't know anything about building or real estate, but it was the project that launched a lifetime passion, not only for real estate investing, but for passive income. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Neil Bawa has properties in 10 states worth more than $200 million and is the CEO of Grow Capitus Investments. And he's with us here today on The Real Wealth Show to share his wisdom. Neil, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks for having me on the show. And I'm very excited that we are finally able to meet
0: Yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have you here. I always love seeing you out and about at events. You are probably the best networker I've ever met. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about how you got started in real estate and what you were doing before it.
1: Uh, yeah, so um, Kathy, I am a technologist, so uh, you know, data science is is my passion, and I got into real estate in reverse. So most people that I know actually start by buying a turnkey home through Kathy Petke. I think you know her. <laughs> <I> um <do. laughs> But in my case, I started in reverse, where my first real estate project was a six million dollar new construction mixed use office building in two thousand and three. So about sixteen years ago. And it happened because uh, the company that I was working for, I was a minor partner there. The owner and CEO of the company said, hey, we're not going to rent. We're going to build our own custom campus. It's going to be like the Apple Spaceship Campus, but we're going to custom design it for our own use. And by the way, Neil, you're going to build it. And I was like, are you kidding me? I haven't even rehabbed a kitchen. You want mm-hmm. me to build a $6 million campus from scratch? I mean, that has disaster written all over it. And you know, he was like, no, 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 no. I'll give you some help. I, I'm an expert myself, which he was. And we'll figure it out as we go. And the next nine and a half months, we only had nine and a half months to build because we were not able to renew our, our lease with General Motors, our landlord, who didn't like us one bit. And so in nine and a half months, we ran a company that was growing at 30% year over year. We had 200 employees and we built a campus in the evenings. And so it was, <laughs> <laughs> it was terrifying because I was terrified of making a big mistake and you know, the city coming in and basically kicking us out of our own building. But it worked out. And so I moaned and I complained all the way through the whole nine months saying, this is not, how can this be my job? I mean, I'm a technologist, I'm a CEO. this is not my job. And since the building has been done, I've been thanking him. So for the last 15 years, because that experience, that learning that comes with building something that big from scratch is spectacular.
0: Mm, From ground up, why wouldn't he just go get somebody who knew how to do that?
1: Well, I think he wanted the experience of doing himself. I think that, you know, he's my best friend and my mentor. Paul liked doing things and learning things by himself, likes, Mm. you know, he's he's retired now. And to him, that experience is great. And I think that if he wasn't the CEO of a technology company, he would have been an architect. So there was so much that he already knew that he passed on to me. Mm. It was an incredible learning experience, Kathy, and I use it all the time. Just this year, we've done $150 million in new construction projects, and we've built 31 units or are building 31 units in one of my value projects using the same skills. So it was phenomenal learning. So, you know, and, and after that, I mean, just to complete that story, Kathy, you know, like everybody else, I, I should have gone directly into commercial because I knew how to do that stuff now, right? Mm-hmm. So in 2006, we ran out of space, we built another campus, which was more expensive. And this time, he didn't have enough money to basically pay for the whole thing. So he came to me and said, I know this bunch of doctors, I'm going to stick them in a room with you, sell them on the concept of buying pieces of this building. We now call this syndication. I didn't know that word. I probably broke every SEC rule ever written about syndication (laughs) in the middle of that deal because I didn't even know what I was was doing. Luckily, no fees were charged, right? So that's Mm -hmm. what this SEC cares about the most. And so I bought these nine doctors into a room and, and sold them on this concept. And I thought, if I can sell one of them by the time I've left the room, I'll be great and all nine of them had their checkbooks out. And now I realize why. No fees were charged, no splits were charged. They got,
0: <laughs> they got this the full-profit purchase
1: <laughs> building. They got all of it simply because all I wanted was to you know buy a 30,000 square foot building and use 13,000 feet of it, and then gradually be able to expand into their suites. Yeah. And so 12 years later, the company's been sold. I'm, I'm no longer a partner there, but all of those suites are now rented back to that business that we sold. And so imagine how much of a win-win it was for those nine doctors. 12 years later, same client, 100% occupancy, never paid a dime, either on splits or on fees. So, I mean, that, that was incredible. And a lot of people tell me, oh, Neil, what a miss. You should have charged, you know, millions of dollars. And I said, no, because my business benefited by tens of millions of dollars.
0: Mm. In,
1: in, in with that massive expansion that we did, we were able to sell our business at industry class leading levels. So that was a great learning experience to actually be able to bring other people's money in and not charge them anything. And so in a way, I was learning syndication, and this was 2006, 2007. And then in 2008, I went all in on single family. I'm an, an analytics guy, so I figured out that Madeira, California had the highest decline from the 2005 peak, bought 10 homes there, did wonderfully well with those, and then went off to Chicago and bought properties there that I think you know you know part of that story where I made my mistakes buying properties in areas that were not very good. And as a result of my disasters in Chicago, learning you know more about areas, I then went out and wrote a course. Basically, think of it as my penance for buying in the wrong places in Chicago. I wrote a course and I put it up for free on udemy.com. I don't even get people's email addresses. It was just my way of giving back what I learned. And now 10,000 people a year take that course. And so as I went through that process, I learned a lot more about where to buy in the U.S. and where not to buy in the U.S. And that system now you know, is basically part of the process that we follow when we're buying multifamily properties.
0: Yeah, and it's really in-depth and something I haven't really seen before. I obviously have paid a lot of attention on, on where to invest and where not to invest and have mm-hmm. made mistakes along the way. Uh, but what would you say are the top three things that you've learned in your process of what to avoid when looking at a market?
1: So I'll give you five because it's a five-step five. Yeah. system, right? So it's All a five-metric right. system. So I what I did was I used large data sets, which I downloaded from various places and bought you know, from other places, and I put them into a statistical software and I said, okay, see if you can statistically correlate certain hypotheses that I have with huge amounts of real estate profit. What's the correlation, right? and so i came up with five that appeared to have a very very high correlation between these variables and the amount of money that a real estate investor makes and so the first one was population growth so what we found was while you can invest and do well in places that where population is stable like you know for example cincinnati or cleveland uh, you're likely to do a lot better if you invest in places where population is growing and so the metric that i came up with was that you need about 20% population growth between the year 2000 which was my benchmark year and 2017 which was the year that i created the system and then i gave people a way to use it every year for example next year it's not going to be 20% it's going to be 21.25 so i gave people the formula to use in terms of how much population growth you have and that kind of population growth is not very hard to find there's lots and lots of cities in the us that grew by more than 20% population over that time frame and so that was the first formula if you want to call it that and the second one was income growth. I found that in those same cities, if incomes grew by 30% over that same exact time frame, the second metric that I found was directly correlated to your profits was the household income growth. And the number that made the most amount of sense was over that 15, 16-year timeframe, incomes in that area needed to grow by about 30%. So roughly 2% a year, a little less, but about 2%. What that meant was that metro was keeping up with inflation, because if a metro is not keeping up with inflation, it's actually going backwards. And most people don't realize that, that you need about 2% a year just to keep up with inflation, just to stay in the same place. And so 20% on population growth, 30% on income growth, and the third metric, 40% over that same time frame on home price growth. So you want to see a growth in home prices as well which is a direct correlation. You know, if, if people are coming in, they're competing for resources. When they're competing for resources, that tends to create inflation, which tends to create the income growth. And that income growth tends to create competition for housing, which tends to create the housing price growth. So a, a 20, 30, 40 growth over that time frame, those cities have a much greater correlation to profit. Once again, you can find cheap deals in any city in the US you can go to detroit and find you know properties for 10000 make huge amounts of money i'm not saying that's not possible but let us say on average you went to detroit and bought 10 properties you went to the, one of the cities that matched this rule and you bought another 10 properties there's a very very high likelihood that you would end up making more money in these cities than you would in detroit so some one or two of your detroit properties would do really really well maybe three maybe four but on average you're going to end up doing much better in cities that have population growth, income growth, and job growth. So those were the three first three metrics. Then I got stuck. It took me about seven or eight months to come up with the fourth one. The fourth one was reduction in crime. So what I found was people want to live in areas where crime is going down. And through people talking with each other, folks realize whether crime is going down or going up. And so I tied that back to a website called city-data.com which shows you the crime for every city and every zip code in in the US. And so I I used my statistical system and I found that in that website, there is a city data crime index. And you want to invest in cities where the crime index is lower than 500. So the US has a very wide array of crime indexes. Amongst major cities, Boise is the best uh, with a crime index of 214. Whereas I believe. Memphis is the worst with a crime index of almost 900 amongst the bigger cities. I'm sure that there's you know smaller cities that I haven't looked at. So th- there's such a huge diversity between 214 and almost 900.
0: Mm-hmm. That,
1: and there seems to be a very strong correlation between these and your profits. So I found that if you stayed under 500 on the crime index in the city that you were going into, you had a better chance of making money. Once again, there are good cities that are over 500, so sometimes you have to know when, when to bend the rules. Orlando, for example, is at 550, but I would invest in Orlando because it was at 750 on the crime index, same, same website, same line, about 10 years ago. So what I can tell myself is, yeah, it didn't quite make the 500 cutoff, but look at where it was 10 years ago and look at where it is today. Clearly, the city is going exactly in the right direction, so I can bend the rule just a little bit. So that was crime.
0: And which website do you use for the crime and the, the other metric?
1: The crime index is yes. city-data.com. So don't forget the dash. A lot of people mm-hmm. come back to me and say, well, I, we couldn't find this website. There's a dash mm-hmm. there. So city-data.com, plug in cities. For example, if you plug in Columbus, Ohio and uh, scroll down, you'll see a, a, a white colored crime table. The bottom line of that is the index. It's blue in color. And the number on the far right you'll see for Columbus is 406. So I often recommend Columbus as a Rust Belt city because most Rust Belt cities, crime levels are pretty high, where Columbus Mm -hmm. has a much lower crime rate because of its universities. Mm -hmm. So that's my fourth rule. And then the fifth and final rule to find cities is job growth. So I tried to correlate five years, 10 years, 15 years of job growth. There was no correlation with your profits. But when I tried to correlate the last 12 months of job growth, there was a very high correlation with your profits. So the fifth metric is try to stay in cities where job growth over the last 12 months is higher than 2%. And there's plenty of cities in the U.S. And this one's a little bit harder for me to tell you, so I'm just going to say it and hopefully people find it. The website is DEPT, that's short for department, D E P T of slash employment slash metros. Once again, D-E-P-T of, O-F, numbers, with an S, dot com, slash employment, slash metros. You will see every metro in the U.S., and you'll see brand new numbers, only two months old, of employment. The column on the far right, sort it. If the number's above 2%, that city is going to do really well for rent growth. Rent growth is the magic in owning a home. If you cannot get enough jobs, if you cannot get enough income growth, you cannot get rent growth. If you don't get rent growth, you're not going to hit your goals. So stay above two percent. I tell people, you know, job growth is so insanely tied back to our real estate profits. Most people don't realize it. Here's a rule of thumb, Kathy. I think you'll get a kick out of this. At two percent job growth, you're probably going to achieve decent returns. At three percent job growth, the city is hyper. Everybody wants to buy everything in sight. At four percent job growth, you're ordering ordering champagne bottles. Mm -hmm. At 5% job growth, you're dancing naked in the street with the champagne bottles. (laughs) At 5%, everything that you screw up is forgiven. And it's rare for cities to consistently stay above 5% job growth. My favorites are St. George, Utah, Reno, Nevada, Cape Coral, Fort Myers. These are cities that just often like six, seven, eight months out of the year stay above 5%. Mm-hmm. These are very forgiving cities. You can make huge numbers of mistakes in these cities. You can screw everything up, buy the wrong property on the wrong block. You're still going to make lots of money because at 5%, the city is in a frenzy. Everybody wants to buy everything in sight. Even at 4%, cities are in a frenzy.
0: So that was you in that photo I saw in the newspaper with the champagne bottle and and uh, you were... No, That's no, right. That, they that, that, had, okay.
1: They had a strategic <laughs> leaf placed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's it's amazing how these numbers are very powerful. And I I tell people, 2%, you know, job growth's okay, but push yourself to find cities that are 3% because 3% job growth is just so much money in your pocket, both on the rent side and on the appreciation side.
0: Great information. So I'm curious because I know you did a lot of research on the Chicago Mm -hmm. property that ended up being a disaster. Mm -hmm. So in retrospect, what would you say you overlooked or just didn't know to look at at the time because there were some good things happening in that area
1: there were lots of good things so i think the biggest lesson i learned apart from what i already discussed right so if i if you apply these five metrics that chicago property would not have done well on these metrics and i sort mm-hmm. of knew that so i can't say i went in blind right mm-hmm. but here's what i learned the property had huge numbers of good things happening in its immediate vicinity so About 600 yards away, the Obama Presidential Library, which is the most expensive presidential library ever built. It has a $2 billion budget. It was being built. And at that point, when we bought the property, that location was not fixed. There was another location three miles away in, in Washington Park. This was a Jackson Park location. I had insider knowledge that Michelle Obama was pushing the president to pick Jackson Park because she lived, incidentally, in one of the six buildings that I was buying. She lived there as a child for about three or four months. That was a building's claim to fame. And so she wanted it built in Jackson Park, close to where she lived as a kid. So I knew that information from a uh, a counselor in Chicago, and I believed him. Also, Obama wanted the Jackson Park golf course to be turned into a PGA Championship golf course, and he had approached Tiger Woods about it. Tiger Woods is a friend of Obama's, and Tiger Woods agreed. And so this was public. Everybody knew that Tiger Woods was basically looking to take over the golf course. Then about a mile and a half away, there's this U.S. Steel website, a U.S. Steel piece of land. They've got it on the river. So it's a phenomenal location, but nobody's done anything with it for 20 years. It's been shut down. And so the city was working with a very famous Chicago-based group to revitalize it on a $10 billion project. And they'd already spent $80 million dollars bringing a road into the project. So all these great things were happening, right? And so I was very excited about these things because I was like, if even if one of these things gets built in my window, I will exit well. But as it happens, the big lesson here is that you cannot buy a property that is in a distressed area just because good things are happening around it. That is not a bet that I've ever taken again. I took it once and it didn't work out. The library got delayed because of the friends of Jackson Park suing it. And so now it's being built. So it's just started construction, but it's now out of my window. I've suffered for four years because it didn't get built. The uh, the project with uh, US Steel faltered because the partners argued and it didn't proceed. And Tiger Woods basically said, please start construction on the library first before I build my PGA Championship golf course. So he's sitting on that golf course waiting for the library to you know fully start construction before he does his project. So Two out of three will eventually get built, but four years too late for me. That was a lesson I learned. You cannot go into an area that is not up to par and just based on future growth.
0: Yeah, I've made that mistake before too. We bought a bunch of properties in Indianapolis when the Super Bowl was coming and a whole bunch of things were supposed to happen in this one neighborhood and it never did. And It was just difficult, very, very difficult to make something work when crime is high, for sure. That's an important metric to look at, probably the most important.
1: I think crime is really a big one because Mm -hmm. people tend to ignore it a lot. They look at the buildings, the bones of the buildings look beautiful, especially in places like Indianapolis, Kansas, Chicago. You have these beautiful brick buildings that look so much better than what we're used to in California. And I think that enchants people and they don't look enough at the quality of the area.
0: Yeah. And what would be the one tip you'd give to somebody just starting out?
1: Well, two things. And I think they're connected to each other. Do everything with intent. So I see people going to meetup groups and they will go there and they'll forget to take their own business cards or they'll go to those meetup groups and they'll gather people's business cards and then they won't do anything with them. You've got to make sure that if you're going to a meetup group in the evening, that's a great way, place to find investors, find projects, find partners. It's great. But be very intentional about the process. I see a lot of people just not thinking through, why am I going to this meetup group? When I mm-hmm. talk with people, what will I do with their business card that they're going to hand to me? What is my next step? And then they come back from that meetup group and they don't do anything with it.
0: Neil, I, have you seen my drawer of business cards? Is that what? <laughs> <laughs> are, are you pointing no, a finger at me? You're pretty good at this.
1: You're pretty good at this. <laughs> no, no, I know. I, I, I know that you go go about this process. And obviously, you've got you've got people on your side that follow up. But mm-hmm. I find that individuals don't believe that there's value because if they did, then why don't they touch those cards? Mm -hmm. So let me give you kind of a one minute, 60 second rundown. I still go to meetup groups, though most, most of the time I'm teaching at them, but I'll still go to a meetup group if I see that there's 160 RSVPs because I know there's 80 people that show up there. Number one, when I go to that meetup group, they have this section called haves and wants, right? Where they want people to stand up and say, what do I have? What do I want? And I never go to a meetup if I don't have the ability to stand up there for a moment and talk. Mm -hmm. And everyone that's going to a meetup, if you're looking for partners, projects, or money, you need to be intentional about it and say what you want and say it with a great deal of confidence. Practice it in a mirror before you go there. Think of it as you being the presenter at that meetup for the next 60 seconds. You're the presenter, not Neil Bauer, not Kathy Fetke. It's your 60 seconds. So polish it up and make it compelling. and then as soon as the presentation is done, go in the back, right? Create a group of people around you. I usually take an iPad, which has a flip book going, you know, it has a a slideshow of pictures of properties. And I just hold it in one of my hands and I turn up all the brightness and people from 50 feet away are like, who is this guy and what's he showing? And they just show up and they cluster around me. And then I start talking with them about, you know, multifamily. And every time I get eye contact with somebody and I feel that they're interested in what I'm doing, I hand them my business card. And as they take it, I say, can I have your business card, please? And if they say, I don't have my business cards with me, I always carry a small notebook with a pen and a piece of thread attached. I hand that to them. So now they write their email address to me. And most importantly, when I'm done gathering all these business cards and these email addresses, I do something with them the next day. So usually after five or six minutes of talking to people, I walk away. I, I, I go to a, the bathroom a lot, quote unquote. I'm not really going to the bathroom. I'm going hiding somewhere so I can write notes on the people <laughs> that I just met and decide if they, which of the three buckets do they go into. Is it project? Is it partner? Is it investor? And so I write lots of notes and then I take pictures of my phone for my team and then I throw away the business cards because I never come back from a meetup with a business card. You know, the point here is not what I do in a meetup. The point here is be intentional about everything you do and think about why you're doing it and what your next steps are, and try to do your next steps before you leave that location. I don't see enough people doing that. If you're intentional and you go to a meetup every week, in a year, you'll have more investors, projects, and partners than you, you'll ever need.
0: Wow. Great tip. All right. Well, it has been a pleasure having you here on The Real World Show, Neil. I look forward to seeing you. I think the next event I'll see you at maybe is uh, the best ever in Colorado. That's right. Yeah,
1: yes. so we'll be there in February. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I know this is uh, one of the tough ones to get into, so I'm delighted to be on here. It <laughs> <laughs> that was right.
0: really, really great, and it's been just really a pleasure getting to know you lately. So I'll see you in the new year on the slopes in Colorado.
1: Sounds good. We'll see you there, Kathy.
0: Okay, you. thank Bye-bye. you. Bye bye. And thank you for joining me here on the Real Well Show. I hope to see you live at our Jacksonville, Florida event on February 8th, where 14 companies from different metros around the country will come and show us what's going on in their cities, where the job growth is, where the rental demand is, and how they can help you buy either a brand new home in the path of progress or a fully renovated home that meets our real income standards and make great rental properties. So again, you can check that out at realwealthshow.com. Hope to see you there. Bye-bye.